uh, Romans chapter 2 therefore you are inexcusable O man whoever you are who judge from in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things and do you think this O man you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God or do you despise the riches of his goodness forbearance and long suffering not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance but in accordance with your, with your hardness and your impenitent heart you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honour and immortality but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek but glory and honour and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek for there is no partiality with God for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God but the doers of the law will be justified for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law these also not having the law are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of all men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel and I'm sure Lord will his blessing the first verse says therefore you are inexcusable O man whoever you are who judge for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things you know, and as I promised last week we are we have left chapter 1 behind us and we're all set to uh, enter into chapter 2 and um, I've been spent uh, an awful lot of time in chapter 1 uh, perhaps more than uh, I would have thought but um, we have now entered into chapter 2 you know from verse 16 of chapter 1 which I suppose was our signature verse we spent enough time on it for I am not ashamed of the gospel of, G of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith 
as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And when we looked at that verse, and we looked at it over quite a number of Thursday nights, we saw that Paul was introducing to us the main theme of the book of Romans. This is the theme that he really, really, really wants us to understand. He wants us to know exactly what the gospel is, what it entails, how it has come about, what it means. You know, you might be thinking, well, we all know what the gospel is. We all understand what the gospel is. But I do wonder sometimes if we have such a light view of the gospel. We know the gospel as much as it pertains to me. And yet there is so much of the gospel that remains totally untapped as far as you and I are concerned. We saw Paul introduce to us the main theme of this amazing book. The gospel of Christ. Which is the power of God to the saving of all who believe. You know it seemed when we were in chapter 1 that every word was packed with things we needed to know. You know, there was words that we couldn't pass over. We would have to spend an old Thursday night looking at perhaps just one word. And therefore, for us, progress was very, very slow. But the good news is, chapter 2 will be totally different. Because chapter 2, we won't be dealing with it word by word, but we will be looking at it in the same way as we looked at the last part of chapter 1. It will be block by block. Word by word, I think, would totally destroy us. You know, it would um, bog us down into unnecessary detail. And I tell you, it wouldn't be very edifying if we looked at chapter 2 and then the first part of chapter 3. Word by word, we would be, well, I would lose my congregation even more than I've lost it already. So, the good news is, we won't be in chapter 2 and chapter, the first part of chapter 3 all that long. But I'm sure that there are many things in there that we need to understand and we need to know. You know, I said that we are set to leave chapter 1. But as we enter into the first verse of chapter 2, we are confronted with a word that just won't allow us to proceed just yet. Just yet. We are confronted with this word uh, which is a treat for a preacher because he can, uh, it's an excuse for him to recap. It's the word, therefore. Therefore. It's a word, of course, that implies that what we are about to study in the future has come out or proceeds from what we have already studied in the past. Therefore, because of this, because of what I've already told you, then this is what must happen. No wonder, if we are going to understand any of chapter 1, if you're going to understand any of this amazing gospel that Paul wants us uh, to understand, then we must remember or come to a deeper understanding of what we've already learned. Now the question is, what have you already learned? What have I already learned over the weeks that we have been looking at chapter 1. What is it that we've learned? No, we saw specifically that God has revealed two things to us. 
two things to us. And I said then that the word revealed is the important word. Because none of us would have come to any of these conclusions by any other means other than God revealed them to us. You see, we need the light of God's word. We need His Holy Spirit to take hold of His word and reveal it to us. Otherwise, we're in the dark. Otherwise, we don't get anywhere. But God in His grace, and there's another aspect of His grace, His amazing grace. No, He could have kept us in the dark if He wanted to. He's not duty-bound to enlighten us. No, He has an obligation to come down and show us the way of salvation. It's His love that has drawn the plan of salvation. Not His duty, not His obligation, but it's His love. And I thank God, and I said a few weeks ago, that we should all thank God every day for the revelation of God. Of what He has revealed to us. First of all, of course, He reveals the righteousness of God. Or, could we put it like this, the righteousness that comes from God. That's, I think, what Paul wants us to understand. That's what God has revealed to us. That all righteousness comes from one source and one source only. No, we can't go to each other for righteousness. We can't go to the government for righteousness. We can't go to charities for righteousness. We can't go to the church for righteousness. We can only go to God. Because only He is righteous. And if we need His to be righteous, then we need His righteousness to clothe us. Because ours, says Isaiah, is as filthy rags. And that's a revelation. It's a revelation that many in the world have not seen yet. Because they think that it's their righteousness that will bring them salvation. But their righteousness is as filthy rags to God. And He will discard them and brush them out of the way in the day of judgment. Because they have no value at all. Righteousness has one source and one source only. And that is God himself. He alone is righteous. Didn't Jesus say to the rich young ruler when he says, Good master. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Only God is righteous. And any righteousness that is found in this world has its source in God. And that's the first thing that he uh, enlightens us with. I'm glad he does. Because I don't want to be striving to be righteous for, uh, uh, for God, knowing that I will never get there. I thank him that it's the gift of righteousness that he has given to us. You know, and of course, this revelation has answered the age-old question posed by Job in chapter 9. How can a man be righteous before God? And his best mate, Bildad, in chapter 25, who says the same words. How then can a man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? An amazing question. A soul-searching question. A question that all of us need to know the answer to. Because one day we're going to see him. And if we are not right before him, then we will feel the rough edge of his wrath and his judgment. So it is imperative that we know the answer to Job and Bildad's question. How can we be right before God? And the only answer is, God gives us His righteousness in grace. That's what He has revealed to us, as far as that is concerned. God is the sole source of righteousness, and He has provided it 
for man who is incapable of providing it for himself. You know, and there's grace. There's the gospel of grace. There's the amazing grace that you and I have just sung about. So wonder that I sat down and thought, how amazing is the grace of God. But God's second revelation, as we saw, is the wrath that comes from God and rests upon all unrighteousness. And I said, and you know, I remember saying a week or so ago that this is being worked out now. This isn't something that people are in fear of in the future. The, right, the wrath of God his is revealed against all unrighteousness. You know, we saw this being worked out last week, I think, by his abandoning people to their own desires and their own devices. God gave them up. God gave them over. We saw from the scriptures last week. And that abandoning of by God inevitably, lead, inevitably leads people to complete depravity and loss and we haven't got to have the Bible to tell us that because we can see it in our society today you know some uh, such abandonment leads some to think that the latter part of chapter 1 and that's what we read last week that horrible catalogue that list of depravity and immorality and idolatry that we read last week which I must be honest I was glad to see the back of you know but that is the result of God's wrath. It's the result of being abandoned by God. He lets the rains go so that we rush headlong into such depravity. You know, and the abandonment, the word abandonment, leads some to think that that was all just the Gentiles. The Jews, you know, they got this great idea of themselves. They saw sort of set apart from the rest of the world. And the Gentiles are, are dogs and sinners and, uh, and evildoers and outside this great grace of God. And that's what they get up to. Now some people think that that passage from verse 18 on in chapter 1 is only about the Gentiles. But as you read the passage, I'm not so sure that it's only the Gentiles that are being talked about. It seems quite universal to me. Listen to it again. And go back now to chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Therefore, God also gave them up. Now, to me, that's quite universal. I don't see that as referring to any one group of people. I see that as referring to the world the world you know I'm saying this because when we go back to chapter 2 and verse 1 Paul if you like seems to be introducing us to a bit of a heckler now I call him a Pentecostal and I'm glad are you a Pentecostal Rob? of course I'm a Pentecostal you're, you're a Pentecostal <laughs> why do I say a Pentecostal because Pentecostals love to say amen to things Amen. They love to say hallelujah to things. Hallelujah. And they love to say, that's right, brother. That's right, brother. Yes. That's what Pentecostals do. They, they are very vocal. And they look down at other churches who are not so vocal and think they are dead. But I think that this man, 
that uh, Paul is talking about doesn't mention his name he just calls him a man but he seems to me to be like a Pentecostal Paul unlike Janis on Sunday morning didn't have to ask for an Amen or an Alleluia or a That's Right Brother because the place was full of such affirmation you know when you are introducing people to the flaws and failings of others you don't really need to ask is there a hallelujah in the house can I hear uh, an amen to that they come so readily because we are so prone to point the finger of superiority to those who have fallen to those who have failed to those who are weaker than us and that's what has happened here that's what Paul wants us to understand he does uses this sort of kind of language all through his, uh, um, his writings he seems to introduce us to a person uh, that is um, asking a question remember when we go to chapter 6 of Romans um, he introduces to a man who says oh so if grace abounds shall we sin more that grace will abound more. And that's the type of sort of uh, language that we are using here. He introduces us to what he would think would be an interruption. An interruption. But we see Paul rounding on him. Whoever he is, you are inexcusable, O man. You are inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are who judges, you are inexcusable. Could it be a Jew? Could he be a Jew? Looking down his nose at the Gentiles after Paul has listed this catalogue of evil and immorality, it's quite possible that he's a Jew. You know, many people down through the years in their commentaries have thought that, have said that this man is a Jew. You know, but as I read the whole passage, and as I said just now, I hope you were doing as a matter of form reading uh, the passage before we come to the, to the Bible study so you have some idea as to where we are going on a Thursday night when I read the passage it comes across to me that Paul is actually trying to do away with the distinction of Jew and Gentile he wants to talk universally to men and to women without the tag of Jew over here who thinks that the Gentiles are evil or the Gentiles over here who think that the Jews are superior and it seems to me that Paul wants to do away with the distinction of Jew and Gentile altogether you know we've already noticed the phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile which in no way if you remember when we did that a few weeks ago in no way does it suggest priority but sequence you see Jesus came to the Jews but not as a priority but as a sequence he came to the Jews in order to, to be rejected of the Jews to be crucified on the cross in order for the gospel to go out to everyone that's the sequence there's no priority there's sequence we must always understand that that the Jew is no uh, is no more better off really than you and I as far as priority is concerned it's sequence you have to come somewhere you have to enter into the human race 
somewhere and he chose the Jews to enter in he chose the Jews knowing that they would reject him knowing that they, he would be hung upon a cross as an offering for sin knowing that his resurrection would herald in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the whole world should be blessed by the gospel so it's not a priority it's sequence which levels the playing field um, for everyone so that two groups Jew and Gentile can exist together thus doing away with the sequence you see the cross the cross has leveled humanity the cross has leveled humanity and there is now no distinction between Jew and Greek and you know, for those of you who were here in March 1998 who was here in March 1998. Can I have a show of hands? Three. Three people were here in March 1998. We were doing Ephesians chapter 2. We were doing Ephesians chapter 2 in the, the latter part, not the, the part that's most familiar to us about the grace of God, but the latter part. And I'm going to read it. Therefore, remember you that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made with hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That's an awful state to be in. But that's where Gentiles were before the cross. Because everything that God did, he did with the Jews. And it seemed that if the Gentiles were of no value to him, and no consequence. So Jews and no, Gentiles had no hope, because they were outsiders. But now, says Paul, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off, have been brought near, how? By the blood of the cross. By the blood of the cross. For he himself is our peace. Who has made both one. The Jew and the Gentile one. He's broken down the middle wall of petition. Or separation. Having abolished in the flesh. The enmity that is. The law of commandments. Contained in the ordinances. In other words he's about to do. Away with the sacrificial system. And the priesthood. Because that's been abolished. We did all that in Hebrews. So we know all that, what all that means. And he is about to set the gospel into the world at large. Why? Because the cross has come. The blood of Christ has been shed. And now it's about Jesus. It's not about birth, status, nationality, religion. It's now only about Jesus, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And this is what he says. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Through the cross. Therefore put into death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are the far off. We are the far off ones. He's come to preach peace to you and I. On the basis of the cross. To preach peace to you who are the far off. And to those who are near. That is the Jews. 
So the, the gospel of peace is preached now to both Gentiles and Jews. No distinction. Because the cross has leveled everything. And every human being is now on the same level but are able to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. That's what Paul said way back there in 1998. In March, strangely enough, 1998. This is the mystery that so many have missed. That God's only reason for choosing the Jews was to bring salvation to the whole world. He had one reason, and one reason only, to choose the Jews, and that is to bring salvation to the world. Didn't he say that to Abraham? That, that the whole world will be blessed yeah, because did, of you. He did say that. Thank you, Rob. <coughs> <coughs> the old world. You know, I know when we, for, for those of you that uh, are students of the word, if you you will know that when we come to chapter nine uh, and chapter ten and chapter eleven, you will reintroduce uh, the Jews to us. But that's a, a different issue altogether, and there's nothing at all to do with the true meaning of the gospel. You see, I've heard Christians maintain that Jews are their own special way of salvation. I've heard Christians maintain that um, Jews have a second chance even after they've died because they are Jews. But that just is not true. That's not what Paul tells us at all. Paul is adamant that there is no distinction as far as sin is concerned and there is no distinction as far as salvation is concerned between the Jew and the Gentile and we read it in this passage God is no respecter of persons doesn't put one group above another not even the Jews does he respect more than you and I it's through the cross and the cross and the blood of the cross that all of us will end up in heaven or not. So this man in verse 1, he could be a Jew, but there again he could be me. And there again it could be you. There again it could be us. Wherever he is, Paul rounds on him. You are inexcusable, O oh man. You wonder, pointing to the last verse of chapter 1, he says, you haven't understood a word that I've been saying. You haven't understood a word that I've been saying. For him to stand and say amen to what he'd said in chapter 1 is obvious that he hasn't understood a word that Paul has uttered so far. You know what I suppose that we've all been feeling good about ourselves since last week because we pointed the finger are those in the world whose lifestyles have been projected on the screen of Emmanuel's understanding. God gave them up and they went into this. God gave them up and they went into that. God gave them up and they did this and they said that. That's what we did last week. And I wonder how many of us thought, oh, how could they do such a thing? How could they get up to such a thing? How could they sink so low? 
How could they turn their backs on God so much? How could they do and think just like that? You know, and there we are in Emmanuel, standing aloof from all of that and thinking, how on earth and our fingers are pointing at these people who have failed so much. And then verse 1 comes of chapter 2 and with it a bucket of ice cold water designed to bring us back to where we ought to be. Because this superior attitude and condemning finger that we are prone to have has been wiped away completely. Wiped away completely. Because we are feeling now the condemnation of Paul. You are inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are who judges, who points, who thinks that, yes, they need salvation. Boy, don't the people in the world need salvation? Don't they need grace? Don't they need the blood of Christ now? Isn't it funny? We always point away from ourselves. We always think of others who have gone worse than us, who have done worse than us, who have sunk lower than us. These people need salvation. They should be ashamed of themselves for finding themselves doing what they did. But listen. Listen very, very carefully. Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. You see, it's true that no one, no one at all, truly lives up even to their own standards. No one lives up to their own standards. And the list of wickedness in chapter 1 includes attitude as well as action and even with our first look and even with us our first look should be at our hearts and not at our hands no we are so good at harboring thoughts but never issue into acts but Paul says your attitude your heart is where everything starts you know, and Jesus tells us that so much uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us that about our heart being deceitful above all things. And whatever uh, comes out of our heart is what um, condemns us. So we've got to be very, very careful. But we first look at our hearts before we even glance at our hands. You know, and seeing the misdemeanors of others will lead us to think that they deserve the judgment of God. When we ourselves are artists at excusing ourselves or justifying ourselves. You know, and on that great day of judgment, what if God used our own righteous standards to judge us by? I wonder how many of us would prove righteous even by our own standards. And that's what this man has done. He's judged these people by his own standards. And Paul says to him, you also will be judged by your own standards. And you will fail uh, miserably. I wonder how we would fare. I've got to be honest, it's frightening how I know I would fare. Because there's no way that I could ever live up to the standard that I would set for myself. Listen to the words again. You are inexcusable, O man. 
Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those, those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? And you, this is man, Paul. I'm beginning to understand it now. I'm beginning to see what you were saying. Those atrocities, those atrocious lists of evil at the back of chapter 1, those things that made my flesh creep, those things that made me think of the actions of others, you were really referring to me. What a revelation. We stand back in horror. But that's a picture of us. That's a picture of us. They were showing me where I stand. They were displaying my heart and they were underlying my need of God's revealed righteousness. And that none of my own righteous, righteousness comes up to the standard which I expect, let alone the standard that God expects. Paul, I'm in the same boat as everyone else. Paul, I need God's righteousness to clothe me. Paul, I need the blood of Christ to cover me. Paul, I need the mercy of God to make me accepted in the beloved. Paul, I'm as bad as everyone else. To give him his full name, Augustus Montague, top lady, AM to his friends. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save. You alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul foul now before we came to verse 1 of chapter 2 we were looking down on the foul we were looking down on the naked we were looking down on the helpless but now foul I to the fountain fly wash me saviour or I die now top lady you must agree he's got it spot on and if we have not come to that place in our lives, then we haven't understood the doctrine of justification by faith. You know, we had the doctrine of justification by faith preached to us on Sunday morning. An amazing sermon brought us an awful lot of understanding. But it means nothing to any of us unless we understand our need, our predicament our situation and until we do until we come to this place but when we read those horrible verses of chapter, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 on we don't, when we, if we don't understand that that's me he's talking about then we haven't understood the doctrine of justification by faith because had it been by works then we are in deep deep trouble you know, Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 
isn't a sad indictment on the world. It's not even a sad indictment upon the Gentiles at large. It's a sad indictment upon me. I am that person. You know, I said earlier that the word revealed is very important in the doctrine of justification by faith. The darkness of our hearts, the subtlety of sin, the deceitfulness of the flesh will always protect our dignity. I'm not like that. Yes, I can see it in them. But I'm not like that. Yes, they need a saviour. Boy, do they need a saviour. Boy, do they need judgment and wrath. But I'm not like that. Why? Because my heart is darkened. My flesh is deceitful. Sin is subtle. And my dignity is protected by all that. My standing, my righteousness. I will protest it for eternity. And that's how it will continue. That's why this church only has 11 people in it tonight. Because the bulk of the people in the Rhonda Valley will stand and say, they need, they need, they deserve. And everyone will keep their own dignity because of the darkness of their hearts, the subtlety of sin, and the deceitfulness of the flesh. And it will continue until revelation comes. Until God shines His light into our heart and shows us exactly who we are. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this, this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light, the light, lest the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shone in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Boy, do we need that light. Boy, am I glad that that light has shone in my heart. God, boy, do I, am I so thrilled that I know where I was and where I would be today bar for the grace of God. I need the grace of God as much as any of those people that were described in our text last week. You know, I think of the two thieves perishing by the side of Jesus. You know, and we will be sort of looking at this scene uh, in the next week or two of three crosses Christ, the righteous in the middle, and two evil thieves on one side and the other. One without a shred of remorse, of repentance or guilt. Even when the, the nails went into his hands, even when he was slammed into the ground, and every tissue and, and tendon was pulled to its extreme. Never once did he say sorry. Never once did he admit that he was wrong. Just looked at Christ and said, Save us if you are the Son of God. No remorse, repentance or guilt. And yet the other one. The other one. You know, they were both in the same boat. Both did exactly the same thing. They were there, says the other one, because of what they had done. Because of who they were. But by revelation, somehow, it had been revealed to this one that God was on the cross with him. 
And he says to his friend, Don't you fear God? Knowing that we are under the same condemnation as him. He looked at Jesus and saw God. And realized that he was a sinner, deep-dyed and guilty of everything that he had been charged with. And then of course he sees Jesus, the Savior, the Lamb that was slain, the one that was suffering for his sin. And in repentance and remorse and mercy, pleas for mercy, he cried out, Lord, Lord. Where did that come from? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see what music to the dying years of our Savior. What a joy must have filled his heart. He's approaching the moment of death. And already one has come. Already. You know, it's like opening your first shop. And the bell rings for the first customer to come in. And you're up and running. Here he is, the first man ever to be born again through the blood of Christ upon the cross. You know, it's, it must have been an amazing moment. Well, let's ask Isaiah. Perhaps he can enlighten us. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he says. He has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, what was he doing? He was making his soul an offering for sin as he hung upon that cruel cross. When you, you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. You know, and Jesus was alive to see the first seed that would come. He'd have to die first before him. But he was the first one that was going to come. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. And listen, he shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied. And here he is. Satisfaction. Before he ever breathed his last. Satisfaction of soul. See in this man. What, what, what was the difference? What was the difference between these two deep-dyed sinners? Revelation. He saw who he was. Because he judged himself not against his body but against his God. And when you judge yourself against your body, you come out okay. Whoever you are. But when you judge yourself against your God, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And we shrivel. And we die. And we cry for mercy. That's what happened to me. That's what happened to you when you came to faith in him. You know, and tonight, I really believe that he is satisfied with the labour of his soul as he looks upon Emmanuel. Eleven people. Eleven people. But eleven souls that have been saved. One soul when he was on the cross and he was satisfied. Eleven souls in Emmanuel. And let me tell you, he's satisfied with every one of us. Every single one of us. Not because we are righteous, not because we are good. Not even because that we are better than the rest. But because we have received revelation of our desperate need of God's amazing grace. And we have received confirmation that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But let's always remember 
what we've learned tonight and to continue to give God thanks for ever showing us what he has the amazing grace of God it's absolutely incredible I think we sing amazing grace I did